0: distances between them. Galilee is kind of his hometown area, and Nazareth is located in that, but it is well far north of Jerusalem, and this is where his ministry is beginning, the public ministry of this. As we talked about last week, we had the baptism of Jesus, then we had the time of testing of Jesus, and now you see the beginning of this public ministry. Now, a couple words that we need to talk about here real quick before we get to the big words. Uh, The first thing you see there is the idea of preach. He was preaching the gospel. Preaching just means proclaiming. That's what it means. I hope that every day you are preaching the gospel and how would you proclaim. So often as individuals, we'll talk about everything else. We'll talk about weather. We'll talk about sports. We'll talk about Christmas coming up. We'll talk about everything. But if we're going to go talk, let's proclaim the gospel. Let's preach it in every conversation we have as the Lord leads us. Keep that in the back of your mind. Which now gets us to the three words that I really want us to talk about tonight. The idea of what is the gospel, verse 14, and what does it mean, verse 15, to repent and believe. Those are three vital words. Those are words that we throw around a lot as Christians. We talk about sharing the gospel. We talk about being a gospel church. We talk about repenting. And we're wanting people to believe. So now let's talk about these three words represent. First one, their gospel literally means good tidings. We don't usually say tidings too much in our 21st century vernacular. So we say good news. That's what the gospel means. It literally means good news. And the Greek form of this word is where we get the words evangelist and evangelical. So if you've ever wondered what it means to be an evangelist, if you ever wonder what an evangelical church is supposed to look like, or if you've ever wondered what evangelism is, it all comes from the Greek word for gospel. This idea of going out there and sharing the good news. That's what it means. So what's the good news? Well, the book of Mark ends with this this command. Mark sixteen fifteen, and he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's what we're supposed to do. I like when God makes it simple. He very simply says at the end of Matthew, go make disciples. He says at the end of Mark, go preach the gospel. So if you're making disciples and you're preaching the gospel, you're doing exactly what Jesus asked you to do. That's a great thing. So I want to go out there and preach the gospel. And not just preach the gospel. I want to understand how important the gospel is, the good news. Paul said in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Not ashamed of the gospel. So as I go out and I preach the gospel, I want to make sure that I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Understanding that this is my life, this is the good news, this is absolutely everything. So therefore I'm not ashamed of it. That way, when I'm talking to people, I'm looking for prayerful opportunities to see Jesus come up. I'm looking for opportunities for the door to open to really proclaim the gospel, the good news. What does that look like? Let's talk about what the gospel is. Can you go with me to First Corinthians 15, please? First Corinthians 15. Can we define what the gospel is? Paul does a good job here in 1 Corinthians 15 of trying to summarize the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, let's start in verse 3. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Nice, simple, straightforward. That's the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Look at some of the other wording though here that Paul uses in this. I delivered to you first off that which I also received. There's some wording in there. You need to first receive the gospel. And as you receive the gospel, what are you supposed to do? Deliver the gospel to other people. That's how this evangelism works. Because remember the word gospel, also we get evangelism. So this idea of I receive it. And then I also pass it on. And I look at verse 3. First of all, Paul saying, this is the most important thing, folks. The most important thing. I was talking to a guy today and just praying for an opportunity to really see where the Lord would take it. And he started talking about something else. And I said, you know, one of the things I always tell my boys is this. And the whole scheme of heaven and hell and the whole scheme of eternity doesn't really matter. If you keep that in the back of your mind with every situation you run into, it really helps you keep the gospel center. Because if it doesn't matter in the whole scheme of heaven and hell, let's not make that big a deal out of it. If it doesn't matter in the whole scheme of eternity, let's not make that big a deal out of it. Because Paul is telling me right here in verse verse 3, first of all, this is the first thing, this is the most important thing, is to make sure you understand that Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So, if you're here tonight... And you say, I want to go out and share the gospel. This is what you're sharing the idea of Christ coming, dying for our sins, but not staying dead and rising again the third day. So often, when we think about presenting the gospel, we think about presenting the gospel in something along these lines God loves you, He does love you. But He loved me so much He died for my sins. See, I have to get that sin idea in. Because here, the gospel means good news, right? You can't have good news unless you have bad news. If Jesus just died for everybody, and there was no hell, and there was no eternal punishment, and there was no punishment for our sins, and just he died for you, and whether you like it or not, you're all going to spend eternity in heaven with him. That's not the gospel. That's forced salvation. To have good news, you have to have bad news. And now we get to our next word here. Jump back to Mark chapter one, please. Repent. See, gospel gives us the good news. Because there's some bad news that we need to talk about. So we're going to get to the word repent here in just one second. So hold your horses on repent. But any quick questions here, real quick, making sure we understand what the gospel is. That word is thrown around a lot as believers. And I want you to understand what it means to know the good news of what Jesus Christ did for you. And that you're not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1. And according to Mark 16, you're called to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Are we all good on what the gospel is. Any questions? Okay. Now, let's talk about the word repent. Repent's an interesting word. If you look in Matthew 3 and Matthew 4, repent is the first word that John the Baptist used in his ministry and repent's the first word that Jesus used in his ministry. So obviously it's an important word. What's the word repent mean? Repent implies changing. Changing on how you see God. So when you get this idea of repenting, it's this change that happens. See, once again, the gospel is the good news. Why do I need good news? Because there's bad news. What's the bad news? Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The bad news is my sin brings forth death. The good news is I have eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want to now change. Change how I see God. And that's what the word repent means. Here's the deal about repenting. It doesn't mean what we think it means. Repenting does not mean you feel bad about something that happened. Repenting does not mean that you want to be different. Repenting means you change. There's a lot of people that feel bad about what they did. There's a lot of people that want to be different, and they're not repenting in any way whatsoever. Good example of this is Esau. If you remember the story of Esau, Esau gave up his birthright, his blessing to Jacob. Jacob deceitfully took it, but Esau gave it up. According to Hebrews 12:17, it says, "For you know that afterward, when he, meaning Esau, wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears." Esau diligently sought repentance with tears and he didn't find it. Why? Because he didn't really want to change. I remember years ago, I had a guy that got himself in trouble, and he got caught. So he came into my office one time after church on Sunday, and he was in tears. And he was very, very sorry for what happened. And I asked him, I said, are you here because you want to change? Are you here because you got caught? And he says, I'm here because I got caught. I said, if you wouldn't have gotten caught this week, would you be in my office today? He said, no. I said, if you could get away with it again, would you get away with it again? He goes, honestly, yes. I said, this isn't repentance. This is you got caught. And so since you got caught, you're sad. Listen, parents out here, you've seen it with your kids. They're not repentant. Oh, yeah, there's tears. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth because they got caught. And they feel bad. And they feel guilty. Repentance is, I'm going to change. From the biblical sense, repentance is, I'm going to change on how I see God. Not just feel bad, not just want to be different, but I truly want to change. Truly want to change. Go with me now to Luke chapter 3. And as you want to change, it changes how you live. Luke chapter 3. Now, I have to throw this out there because this is where sometimes people start hearing something different than I'm not saying. I am not preaching in any way whatsoever salvation based on any type of works. As you're going to Luke chapter 3. You know the great passage in Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For as by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, it is not of yourself, as a gift of God. There's nothing you can do to earn salvation. It was all taken care of through Jesus Christ on the cross. Nothing. I'm going to make that abundantly clear. But the Bible also does make this clear. If you proclaim and claim to be a Christian, your lifestyle changes. We just got done studying 1 John. 1 John is saying repeatedly... That if you claim to love God, you're going to treat people different. 1 John says you can't say you hate somebody and say you love God. 1 John says you can't say you love God and then not help the people in need. 1 John says you can't say you love God and keep on habitually practicing the same sin. That's what he says. That's not just 1 John. James says faith without works is dead. Paul says in Acts 26, listen to this, Acts 26 verse 20. But we declared first to those in Damascus and to Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. See, Paul says you should repent, turn to God, there's that idea of change, and then change how you live. The changing how you live does not save you. The changing how you live shows outwardly the inward change that's happened in your life. John the Baptist makes a point of this. Take a look here at Luke chapter 3. Luke 3, starting verse um, 8. Actually, back to verse 7, because verse 7 is one of the greatest verses in the Bible. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I love that. I've never seen that on a Christian shirt, but that should be on a... You should put that on your... If you haven't sent your Christmas cards out yet, that's your verse for your Christmas cards. Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Change. Repent. Change. Change how you think. Change how you act. Change how you live, because that shows that you've changed in the Lord. See, we always like to think of changing as a little bit of a moral difference. He doesn't drink as much. She doesn't gossip as much. He doesn't hate as much. Amen. Those are good moral changes. Repentance carries this very deep, deep idea of you're going the complete opposite direction from where you were. You have so changed how you live and think and act. Your mind has changed how you see God. So that's why he says in verse 8, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. See, what the Jews were saying is, repent, why do we have to repent? We're Jews. We're descendants of Abraham. We're circumcised, we're in. John the Baptist says, you're trusting in the wrong stuff. Verse 9, and even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John says, if you're different, you should live different. You should act different. I I, I say this a lot. I don't get it. Why is it as Christians, do we talk like the world, live like the world, dress like the world, watch the same things the world watches, do the same things the world does, and they wonder why the world doesn't see Jesus Christ in us. There should be a change in us in all that we do and say. And God makes it abundantly clear there in verse 9. Every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. There's a judgment, a judgment that's coming. So what do we do? Verse 10. So the people asked him, saying, what shall we do then? This is why I like this passage so much. Because it's not just bear fruits worthy of repentance and we move on. People are coming saying, what do you want us to do? What does this look like? John gives actual examples. And let me say again, so no one is utterly confused tonight. It's not that you do these things and you're saved. You do these things because you are saved. I I want to stress that. Because what happens is people hear this, and they start saying, well, therefore, I've done these things, so I must be saved. No, you're saved by what Christ did on the cross. That's the gospel. Well, these people aren't doing these things, so therefore they're not saved. Well, works don't make it; you're saved, works show that you're saved. So if we don't see somebody doing these things, then we need to pray for them and encourage them and do exactly what Paul did in Acts 26 and what John the Baptist is doing here and saying, hey, do works befitting of repentance. You tell me you're different, okay, well, let's go out and live that. So, verse 10, what shall we do then? He answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. He who has food, let him do likewise. What does that mean? Get out there. Share your possessions. Now, this is not, okay, good, good, I'm in now. because so I just gave that old couch to Salvation Army, so I'm really good. No, this is you stopping and saying that I'm going to go help people because I see what Jesus did for me. I was poor and beggarly spiritually. And Jesus came down and loved me. I'm going to go love other people. And you cannot get past all the verses, Old Testament and New, where God says, if you want to show that you love the Lord, go out and help those that are in need. Now, just be careful. Be careful. I call it white-collar evangelism, guilty evangelism. I feel better about myself because I helped somebody. You know, we just spend a lot... I'm not saying we did. I'm saying hypothetically. I just spent a lot of money on my kids for Christmas. So... I made sure that I did two angel tree gifts this year. Well, amen. I'm glad you did angel tree gifts. But maybe the Lord is saying, don't spend much at all on your kids. See, we have a tendency to say, okay, I feel kind of guilty because we were getting new bedroom sets. So I made sure my old bedroom set went really to somebody who's in need. Maybe the Lord is saying, keep the old bedroom set and you go buy a new bedroom set for somebody. See, these are the things that we have to sometimes change the way we think on a little bit. I've shared this example with you many times before, so if you've heard it before, you can tune out for about 30 seconds. You know, when we were down in Mexico for a couple weeks, they kept saying how many groups from America come down, hand out the flour, hand out the oil, hand out the everything. And they're down there for an hour or two, and they give everybody food and money, and then they go back to the States, pat themselves on the back for spreading the gospel. And some of the missionaries that we were working with down there said, no, No, if you're going to come down and spread the gospel, come down and spread the gospel. Yes, giving people food is good. Yes, giving people flour is good and oil is good. That's great. That's a good work. But people with full belly still go to hell. What matters most is them coming to know Jesus Christ. So I'm not saying go out and do the white-collar guilty evangelism. Oh, I have so much so to make myself feel better, I'm going to go give people things. No, John is saying, listen, watch your possessions. Watch your heart towards possessions. Watch your heart towards greed. If you're willing to go spend X amount of dollars on yourself, maybe you should be willing to go spend that same amount on someone else to spread the gospel. Verse 12, Then the tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? He said to people, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. You guys have heard this before. The way the tax collectors worked in the New Testament is this. And I'll use this present day analogy of money. If I owed $100, the tax collector would come and tell me, You owe $150. No, my bill was 100. He goes, "Yeah, I know, but I'm saying 150 because the tax collector keeps the other 50. That's what he used to do." And we're going to get to here in a couple of verses. What he would do is usually take a couple of Roman soldiers with him and say, "You owe 150, and I'm going to keep 30 and I'm going to give 10 bucks to each of these Roman soldiers." So, what John the Baptist is saying here is literally life-changing. Only collect what you're supposed to do. What's that showing? Greed. Do you realize how much of our life and world is built on greed? We fight tooth and nail for more money at work, more this, more that. We've earned it, we've deserved it, and I want more. Oh, man, go read Ecclesiastes. More is never satisfied. Never satisfied. 14, likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, and what shall we do? So he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. See, that's what they were doing, too. They'd come and intimidate. You got two big Roman soldiers there saying you owe an extra 50 bucks. They have swords, you don't. They have shields, you don't. They have armor, you don't. Intimidating, fine, take the $50. Accused falsely. If They're not going to give us the extra 50 bucks. We may just have to come up with a crime here that we see happening. And be content with your wages. See, John is saying, if you really have changed in the Lord, if you've really repented, these are the changes we're going to see in you. There's going to start to be changes in how you live and how you act. How you live and act. That's why I love hearing testimonies from people. Because you, you see them at church, and you just have always assumed they've had it figured out. And we got some marriages out here at church that people see them on Sunday, and they say, oh, you know, they've probably been just married and this and that, and everything's great. It's like, yeah, you don't know what they went through. You don't know that they were separated. You don't know. We've actually done two weddings out here where people got divorced and got remarried. You don't realize what the Lord's done. You know, one of my favorite stories is I went up to a guy one time and I said something about, you know, he's an older man. I said, how long have you been married? He goes, coming up to, uh, I think he said, coming up to 70 years. I said, that's amazing. He goes, yeah, 30 to one, 40 to another. You get it? 30 to one wife, 40 to another. So, you didn't understand there. He, you said, how long have you been married? You didn't say how long. Sometimes you don't realize what people have been through. And you just assume and you see this. And you don't realize, no, there's been changes in their lives. People come up and say, you don't realize what my mouth used to be like. You don't realize what I used to do on Friday nights. You don't realize the struggles I used to have. But through the grace of God, things have changed. Things have repented Just be careful that you don't water down the idea of repentance to something quick, simple, and easy. True repentance is looking at your life and saying, Lord, this action is not glorifying to you, and I'm sorry. And I want to be done with it. And I want to change. I want to change how I talk. I want to change how I live. I want to change how I act. Not because it saves me, but because I am saved. And I want to go do works befitting Of repentance. What causes us, what drives us to change? The goodness of God. See, a couple quick verses here. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slack concerning His His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants everybody to repent. And so therefore, He is patient with us. Long-suffering towards us, not wanting any should perish. Some of us here got saved fairly young in life. Amen. Some of you here got saved much later in life. Aren't you thankful for God's patience and long-suffering? You know what? What drives us to that? Romans 2, 4. Do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? The goodness of God leads you to repentance. Think about that for a second. That love of God leads us to something more. So, I said earlier, be careful of the whole idea of God loves you. That is true, He does. But God loves me so much that He's going to convict me and bring me to the point of repentance. Because He doesn't want me to stay where I'm at. And we're going to do works befitting of repentance. Repentance. And so we're going to get to the idea of what believing is here, because that's our next word. But before we get to that, any quick questions about repentance? Understanding what that is. Because I want to make sure that when you go out, and I hope you share the gospel, you understand what the word gospel means. And when you go out and you're going to tell people to repent, I hope you understand what that means. And I hope in our own personal lives, we understand what it means to repent. And what we do and what we say. Any quick questions about this? Mark. Right. Sincerity has a lot to do with that. If you can't fool God, you can make you make a confession, but if you're not sincere and really wanting to change, yeah, you have to want it. And it goes back to Esau. He sought repentance with tears, but he didn't want it. And we all know people that have said they wanted their lives to be different, and they go out and do the exact same thing again. Listen, it is a battle. It's a battle to change. And that's why I think it's interesting to go to the next verse after we mentioned there in 2 Timothy 2.25. That they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. And that's the thing is we are caught in this sin. We're caught in this trap. And the Lord then speaks to our heart. And he opens up the heart and he says, this is what's waiting for you. Do you want it? And the truth is some people don't want it. They just don't want it. They want to stay where they're at. Now, please understand that this is a teaching for a different day. In fact, I should just remind you to go back and listen to those teachings in 1 John. Because I don't want anybody to walk out of here saying, Okay, I'm struggling with sin. From what I'm hearing you saying, then that means I'm not saved. No, no, no. There's a huge difference between struggling with the sin and as 1 John said continuing habitually in that sin and saying, I'm not going to change and I don't want to change. There's a huge, huge difference. Huge difference. What we're talking about here in this passage of 25 and 26 is that you see somebody and you go to them in love and humility, correcting those who are in opposition. And then you pray, okay, Lord, open their eyes and ears. We have situations out here at church where we're saying, okay, Lord, let them have ears to hear. Let them have eyes to see. We're presenting the truth. We're planting the truth. I don't know if they want the truth. And sometimes people just don't want it, and that's the sad part. But if they do want it, that's only because they, through the Lord, had their hearts open, their eyes open, and they're willing to respond. Yeah. If you have somebody that's truly saying that, I know God's just going to forgive me anyway, so I'm going to continue doing it. I'll just quote what it says in Romans here, where Paul says, you cannot sin that grace may abound. You know, Paul is saying, if your mindset is, I'm just going to sin knowing that God's going to forgive me, Paul says, you're not understanding grace, you're not understanding forgiveness, you're not understanding the relationship with Christ. Because Paul addressed that in the book of Romans, that people were just saying, well, I'm just going to go out and sin, and I know that God will just forgive me then. Paul says that is a dangerous place to be. So that's what I would tell them. Paul actually took care of that in the book of Romans. Yeah, John. Yeah, God forbid, yeah. Yeah, certainly not in certain translations. Of course not. I mean, what, what a dangerous place to be in to say, I'm going to go willfully, purposely do this. See, I was, I'm was i in this phase right now, and I'm studying the Old Testament sacrifices. And you got your peace offerings, your burnt offerings, your grain offerings. And, but then you got your sin offerings and you got your trespass offerings. And these are sin offerings that you could give to the Lord when you have unintentionally done something, trespassed, etc. But there's something in the Bible called presumptuous sins. And there was not an offering for presumptuous sins. What's a presumptuous sin? A presumptuous sin is where somebody says, I am going to go do this. I know it is wrong, I don't care it's wrong, I planned it out, I want to do it, and I'm gonna do it. That shows such a hard heart towards God that in the old testament there was not a sacrifice for that. And so kind of what you know Meredith is mentioning there, I don't know the individual, but if somebody would come up to me like that, like she is saying, I'm just gonna sin knowing God will forgive me, man, I'm let me take it to Romans. That's that's dangerous and that's scary. That is scary. Anybody else have anything here about repentance before we go on? Marcus. And that's a good point. It is an ongoing. I want to make sure that's clear. Marcus brought up a good point. That's why in Psalm 139, it says, search me and try me, see if there's any iniquity in me. You know, before we do communion out here, we always have a time of confession. And I just encourage you in your own um, private prayer time here that you also have a time of confession as well too, where you stop and you say, okay, Lord, I have seen these sins come into my life. Now I repent. I'm going to go the opposite direction. I think sometimes, and I can't speak for you, I only can speak for me, sometimes the Lord reveals to me something that's wrong in my life. Like, okay, yeah, I need to work on that. No, I need to repent. <laughs> I need to go the opposite direction. I need to change the way I look at it. I need to change the way I see it. Be- not just, oh, yeah, I need to get a little better about that. But when you understand what the word repent means, changing how you see God, changing how you address it, Lord, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah, John. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. and you've mentioned that before, and I like that play, the whole tape. You know, think it through. Is it really going to be worth it? I mean, I always think back to David and Bathsheba. David, you're lazy. You're getting up out of your bed in the evening. You see Bathsheba. Okay, so you like Bathsheba. Obviously, Bathsheba was beautiful. Is it worth it? Is it worth watching your kingdom crumble? Is it worth having your child die? Is it worth having a man killed? Is it worth bringing rebellion into your kingdom later on? No, it's not worth it. Play the whole tape. And back to the verse I was referencing there with Meredith. It's Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And it's not saying that you don't commit sins, but you don't live in it. You don't live in it there. All right, last word then. Believe. 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Wow, this word believe. Believe. I've shared this story with you before that it's it's humorous, and you've heard me talk about it. when I first got saved. I would go out and start talking to people about the Lord, and my great go-to question was, "Do you believe in God?" And every person I spoke to believed in God. So I thought I was the world's greatest evangelist because everybody believed in God. I'm just more people are getting saved through me than has ever existed. You know, when you hear the studies and you hear the survey results, last I heard, I still think we're around three fourths of the United States believes in God. And, and that's the problem. Sometimes we just water down the God. Well, do you believe in God? See, and this is where you have to understand, what does the word believe mean? See, we look at the word believe as just kind of a head knowledge. I believe in it. And then you stop and you look at that, and it's like, well, a lot of people believe in God. The Muslims believe in a concept of God. You know, we have some friends that are, are the Hindus, and they believe in thousands of God's. Well, what's it mean to believe? The word believe carries a much deeper meaning. It's not just accepting. It's actually placing your trust, placing your confidence. It's being persuaded that God is real. It's a completely different thing than just acknowledging the existence of a divine being. It is placing your trust, confidence, and in it, it changes how you live. It changes how you live. I've got to the point now where just asking people they believe in God really doesn't mean anything because they don't even know what God I'm referring to. We go up to Dearborn and we like to do some outreach amongst the Muslims up there. I can go up to the Muslims up there and say, do you believe in God? Most all of them will. Well then, amen. (laughs) I've done my work again. I'm going home. Who is God to you? What does it mean to believe in that? To place your trust, your confidence in them. Now, I'm going to make you go. I usually don't have you turn to just one verse, but this is a good one. Go with me to Hebrews 11, please. I want you to see this one verse here. Hebrews 11. And as you're going to Hebrews 11, I want you to understand how important this word believe is. In John chapter 6, Jesus said this. John 6, 29. This is the work of God that you believe in Him who sent. This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He sent. Jesus summed up this to say, what's the most important thing you could do? Believe in me. So when you stop and you think about that for a second, if you're one of those people that just really struggle, what's God's will for my life? What am I supposed to do? You're supposed to believe in Jesus Christ. Once you believe in Jesus Christ, that's the most important thing you can do. And the word believing means placing your trust, your confidence in him. It's not just acknowledging Jesus exists. It's not just acknowledging he died on the cross. And it's not just acknowledging that he rose from the dead. It's believing it. You know the verse, it's in James, you're very familiar with it. James 2.19, you believe there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. We've said out here many times before, there will not be an atheist in hell. Hell will be full of believers. Satan is a believer. And it's not a belief unto salvation. It is the belief of the head knowledge that God exists. It says in Philippians that every knee will bow. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And hell will be full of people that believe that. What God is asking you is to not just accept it, but place your trust, your confidence in it. Take a look at here at Hebrews 11. Look at verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Do you you see both sides of that? In faith, I believe, and therefore I seek. So it has this faith element, it has the belief element, followed by an action element. That is what is needed. I have faith, I believe, and I seek. And it's this wonderful balance of everything. Everything. There's a lot of people that aren't going to believe. Yeah, they believe in God, but they're not going to place their trust, their confidence in Him. We live in a very, very, quote-unquote, Christian area here in northwest Ohio. In some places, there's literally a church on every corner. Some towns, there's lived towns, there's literally churches right beside each other, churches right across the road from each other. To be quite honest, it's difficult sometimes to find people that don't believe in God. But when you start asking them about placing their trust, their confidence seeking Him, you realize that, yes, they have a head knowledge of God, but they're not out there living the life in any way whatsoever. Please remember Hebrews eleven six: 6 there. Faith, believing, and then seeking. See, so when going back now to Mark chapter 1, when Jesus says, I'm preaching the gospel, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in, in the gospel. Those three words, repent and believe in the gospel, well, yeah, I've done that. When you really start to understand what those words mean, it's a whole lot more than just feeling bad about what you've done and saying, yes, I believe in a God, and yes, I like the good news that I'm not going to go to hell. Man, there's a whole nother level to the depth of that. And we need to truly make sure that we understand the gospel. The good news of Jesus and the bad news of hell. That we repent, change in our lives. Not for salvation's sake, but because we are saved. And we believe, not just mere head knowledge, but life-changing trust in Him. That's what it means to have the gospel, to repent and believe. And when you go out now and share the gospel, you're not just sharing the good news that Jesus loves you, you're also sharing the bad news. And when you tell somebody they need to repent, it's not just clean yourself up a little bit and make a few better moral choices. No, change the way you think and change the way you live because of the changes that Jesus Christ has already made in you. And when you run into somebody who says, I believe in God, no, not just an acceptance of a deity and divine, but truly saying, I place my trust and my confidence in you, and you are God of my life in all ways and all things. So as we go through the rest of the gospel of Mark, and as you go out and live the life, I want you to really make sure you understand what repent, believe, and gospel means. Because when you get those words down, it changes how you live, and it changes how you go out there and talk to other people as well too. Any final questions about anything as we get ready to close up in the last couple minutes here? Alright, we're good. Yeah. Oh, there's no way, and and that's why in John fourteen, fifteen, and sixteen, um, let's, let's go there real quick. Go to go to John uh, sixteen, please. John sixteen. We've got to remember what the Holy Spirit's job is. Uh, Let's we'll start in verse 7. John sixteen seven. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For I do not go away. The Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. And of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. You know, the, the initial... Preparation is, is always the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is preparing hearts. you know that we mentioned the second Timothy chapter two. The Holy Spirit is convicting people of sin, and so therefore when the gospel is presented and the gospel is presented by someone who is then led by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is giving him words, and then that heart, then through conviction of the Holy Spirit is now opened up, and then that person can come to know who Jesus Christ is because the Holy Spirit has led them, led them to salvation. So yes, the Holy Spirit is absolutely vital in leading us and sharing the gospel, empowering us in our words to share the gospel, and making sure the heart is prepared. There's been numerous times in my life where I have desperately wanted to share the gospel, and the heart wasn't prepared. And there's probably been times in my life where the heart was prepared, and I didn't follow the leading of the Holy Spirit to go share it. So therefore, the Holy Spirit leads us to share, and the Holy Spirit then also prepares the heart. So with that being said, you can't kick yourself When they reject the gospel. Because that's between them and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You just need to be willing, ready, and able. And as the Holy Spirit leads through the empowerment of Him. To go out there and do that in all ways and all things. Yeah, John. Yeah, you know, and that's John fourteen twenty six. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. As we mentioned many times before, there's times in devotions where I read the devotion, and to be quite honest, it's not like it's earth-shattering at that time. Five hours later, I'm talking to someone, and all of a sudden that devotional is coming back. And the Lord is saying that devotional wasn't for you this morning, it was for you to give it to someone else this afternoon. Those scriptures that you're reading. And that's why the Bible makes it abundantly clear to be diligent, to show yourself an approved workman, rightly dividing the word of truth. As it says in Proverbs 15, the diligent heart studies, readies, prepares how to answer, but the Lord directs the tongue. So as we mentioned Sundays, we got into Proverbs 16. It's this beautiful balance of the Lord leads my, my uh, words, the Lord leads what we do and say, but I also have a responsibility to be in the Word, as John said, Word, prayer, fasting, worship, etc. To prepare, and the Holy Spirit brings all that to remembrance. And it's a beautiful thing. When it happens, you just sit there and say, wow, Lord, I'm a vessel. I'm a vessel. It's an amazing thing. All right. I think we're good here. Hey, why don't we stand and let's pray. Please remember... Uh, Church on Sunday, the 23rd. We'll have our regular 8, 30, 10 o'clock services uh, Christmas Eve. Then 4.30, Christmas Day. You're welcome to come out here from 11 to 1. And no church next Wednesday, the 26th. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we could go out and be led by the Spirit to present the gospel in all ways and all things as you lead, that hearts are prepared, Lord, hearts are prepared to hear it, and that we could preach that message of good news, preach the message of repentance, preach that message, Lord, of believing, and the Lord, help us to truly go out and live it in all we say and do. Thank you for your grace, your absolutely amazing grace. And your patience with us, Lord. And Lord, if there's someone here tonight, as we heard about repentance, and they're just struggling with something, show them, Lord, the strength you give, the power you give, how you can help them in all ways and all things to do what's right. In you, through you, by you. We say thank you in your name. Amen. You guys have a good week and God bless.